Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. Last episode, we talked fandom. And if you haven't checked that out yet, I spoke to three experts on Broadway fandom about how and why we as industry should foster the fan experience. Well, after that episode, I was all revved up and ready for BroadwayCon, a convention that is built by and for Broadway fans and really celebrates this fandom. On this episode, I'm going to bring in my co-producer, Broadway World's Matt Timonini, to help us with a little debrief of my experiences at BroadwayCon. And I'm going to talk to you about how those experiences interacted with the content of our last episode. Then, Matt and I will do what we love to do most, which is to discuss recent updates to the current and upcoming Broadway seasons. All right, Oliver, we are here in February, and we're not too far removed from Broadway Con that happened over the last weekend in January. And you went to Broadway Con after we had an, an episode kind of about the fandom of Broadway that included uh, Melissa from Broadway Con. And was this your first time going to the this, convention at all? Yeah. Yeah. This was my first time experiencing sort of all the stuff I had heard about uh, on our last episode, which was even I, – I thought that the conversations that I had – well, they were. The, the conversations I had with these fandom experts last episode were so eye-opening for me. But the thing that they kept telling me throughout our conversations was you really just got to see it. You got to just see it. And so <laughs> um, having seen it, I can say they're right. There's really nothing like experiencing the – what what it is to put a bunch of of, fan, of fans like that in a room, and we'll we'll talk about yeah. uh, about that a bit. But yeah, it was my first time. Yeah. Now I've I've haven't been to Broadway Con. We'll we'll get to maybe we'll talk about why. But um, I have been to some other conventions that are down here in Orlando where I live. One uh, called MegaCon, which is basically just a derivative Comic Con thing, you know, with TV and movies and comic books and superheroes and stuff. And the amount of people who cosplay is eye-opening and jarring um, for me, who's uh, very much an, an introvert when it comes to those kind of things. Yeah. It, I would, I imagine it's the same thing at Broadway Con, but it, maybe it's not. I mean, is it is it a large percentage of people that get that into it? Because that's something that honestly, that's something that scares me as 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 an adult when there's that many people in costume. It's um, it's a lot. I mean, I I would it. Would, I don't think it's a majority of people. I mean, it's definitely not, but it's it's a okay. higher percentage than I thought. I would say 15, 20% of people are in serious costume or at least some form. I actually, you know, cosplay takes different forms, I think. And there were some people who cosplayed as um, Dear Evan Hansen, which really just took, you know, wear, putting maybe <laughs> an ace bandage around your arm and wearing a striped, you know, collared shirt. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, something as simple as that. Uh, there are some that were... Characters from Cats, which were elaborate co- yeah. furry costumes. There were, there was. Uh, I saw someone dressed as a Great Comet, uh, one of those chandeliers that they had in the Great Comet, like just <laughs> sort of. Um, what do they call them? Um, and so, and so, it just it, the range is crazy. I mean, there were also some people who were cosplaying in very theatrical outfits that may or may not have actually been 
at least not recognizable, you know, to, to a particular show or, or not one, you know, f- from from recent memory, yeah. but just like engaging in the cosplay of it all. And I was so I was sort of uh, watching these people have so much fun that even on, on the last day and I, I, I have a friend who took a picture so I can I can maybe we'll put it up on the, on the post. Uh, I wore like I have this bow tie that has a Broadway um, like the, a street sign. On it, and I just wore like my regular button down shirt. But I, I was like, these people are having so much fun. I got to put something on that that I won't, wouldn't wear day to day, but that I can wear in this sort of safe environment. Because I think that you know what you said about the the reason why you and I don't normally engage in these things. I don't think these people are, uh, you know, th- I don't think they're that much different than I than than us. I don't, in that, I think the difference is the level of security they feel when they're around other super fans allows them to express their fandom in a way that they don't usually express it. Yeah. So basically what you're telling me is next year, day one, you're going as uh, Mark from uh, <laughs> from Rent. Day two is Fiero. And day three, maybe uh, Rum Tum Tugger? Is that, yeah, exactly. that that's seemed... my plan. I, yeah. I got to get started, though, because I'm not that great at, at uh, okay. I got to find a, a good costume designer. I, I have a feeling you have some connections that can help with that. <laughs> Yeah, so sure. we'll get back to the fandom stuff, but yeah. what was fun and interesting about BroadwayCon this year is that for the first time ever, they had like a, I don't know if it was a, a new day or whatever, but the, yeah. before BroadwayCon itself got started, um, they had what they called Industry Day, where they had professionals from all parts of the theatrical community, from um, from producers to yeah. marketing to um, social media to theater critics to, I mean, John Leguizamo, you know, an actor, he, he, was, he was part of one as well. And that was something that I know you were really interested in hearing. And it was a day full of, I mean, like, a lot of hour-long sessions or 45-minute-long sessions. What were you, I don't want to go through each of them, but a yeah. lot of them did focus on fandoms. Um, so it does kind of tie into what we've already talked about. But what were the things that you pulled out sure. of Industry Day? Yeah. So Industry Day, for, first I'll say, you know, Industry Day I think was such a smart idea. And it's really the whole day dug deep into the question of our last episode, which was how do we as industry uh, – you know, create a, a works to foster the community of fandom. How do we understand these fans? Because there is a distrunk, right? Like it's not though it is. Br- well, well, actually, Melissa said it very well last la- last episode. BroadwayCon is really run by fans. Melissa is a fan, and she's made a business around creating these fan uh, conventions. But they sort of like they source from industry, right? They get industry guests to speak, but it really is like you know by and for. Fans. So Industry Day was just sort of turn on that where Situation Interactive scheduled programming for industry about fandom instead of uh, for fans about the industry. And just just in case people aren't familiar with Situation Interactive, they are one of the leading press and ad agencies uh, yeah. in the Broadway community. Right. Their, their, their focus is really um, digital interactive uh, marketing. And so that's where I think the partnership comes in, which is that when you talk about, right, we, we talked about this last episode, the advent of the digital era and social media makes this fan production interaction so much easier and not something that has to happen, you know, just by stage dooring or, you know, fan mail. So, but before I get into sort of what, what I learned, cause there are some really amazing key takeaways. I just also want to say that industry day itself, I think is really brilliant because it solves the problem of why I never went to BroadwayCon before, which is that, uh, the BroadwayCon tickets are priced quite high. And for a fan 
who's getting a catered experience, hmm. that makes sense. But to industry who's sort of trying to use it as a way to learn about the fan experience, I always found that it was a little bit inaccessible, right? Like it was, it might not be worth the bang for my buck. Right. What Industry Day added as well was that if you bought a ticket to Industry Day, it was a very cheap upgrade to also go to Broadway Con. So I just want to also say that on top of the actual day being very valuable, I think it also uh, increased the value of Broadway Con for us as industry. Um, and if you if, if that if price point's been a reason why you haven't checked out industry, uh, Broadway Con before as someone who's in the industry, now there's sort of a reason to. So that hmm, that's my sort of that's my sort of unofficial promotion of, of the pricing model that they've, that they've created. They did, but they did not pay you to say that is right, what you're saying. Right. Um, but so, so, so more importantly, I think that energy day was awesome. And, and the, the thing that's, you know, I'm a data numbers guy and I'm going to botch this name and I'm sorry, but Lisa Sacchini, uh, Lisa, who's the VP media, uh, of media and analytics at situation interactive, sort of gave a an intro uh, to the day, laid the, laid the foundation for why we're talking about fans, especially super fans, as opposed to ticket buyers, which, which you know, she explained are, there's an overlap, right? Like if you made a Venn diagram, ticket buyers and fans, uh, there's, a, there's certainly an overlap, but it's not totally inclusive. Not every fan is going to buy a ticket. So last episode, we heard these anecdotes from Melissa and from Mark and from Laura about why they feel that investment in potentially in, in fans that potentially would never buy a ticket is worthwhile. And what Industry Day started with is some hard data to support that. So what, what Lisa had, uh, showed us is that Situation did a study across a, uh, a number of Broadway shows, social media pages. So uh, Facebook pages for hmm. several shows, some that they managed, some that they didn't. And what they found was, uh, so the, the first thing that they asked, uh, so, so a survey would go out to someone who liked the show. The first thing that was asked is, have you seen the show before? And it was a near 50-50 split on whether the person had ever bought a ticket or attended wow. the show before. So already that means that 50% of our social engagement, of our digital engagement with uh, with people on the internet is with people who are fans but have never seen it. And so then the question is, okay, well, why did you like the page if you haven't seen it, right? It's a little bit weird uh, f for me to think that that someone would like the Tide detergent page if they're not using Tide detergent. Well, or eating Tide Pods, but right, that's a whole other topic. That's, that's sort of why I think I went there. Uh, <laughs> but um, but, but so, so, why, so why is that not the case here? And so, you know, there, there were options and, and it was sort of a mix of maybe they'd heard the music, they'd seen it on live video, they'd read an article, um, or they heard from friends and family. But what was sort of, again, very interesting is that only 20% of the non-ticket buying likers of the Facebook page had been recommended it. So it was, so, so it was content that was being supplied to them via the cast album or some online video or some press article that uh, sent them over to the page and started them engaging with the property, uh, which means that well, we're really the story that's really been told through the data so far is that there's a large chunk of of individuals who are potential fa uh, brand ambassadors for your show that have never bought a ticket, have never really spoken to someone who's who's bought a ticket. They just 
you know, maybe they're in New York, but they can't afford it. Maybe they're outside of New York and aren't coming in, but they found the material and they, uh, they liked something. So uh, the hmm. question of industry day was sort of how do we activate that audience? And uh, sort of the, the last tidbit that I'll, that, I'll, that I'll say in terms of these statistics that's so fascinating is, is the why activate that audience. I think a lot of people, and, and I talked a lot about this last, uh, last episode with Laura, why spend money and resources and time activating that subset, whether it be large or small, of people who are saying they like the show but have never seen it, maybe will never see it. And I think the reason is what, what Lisa's situation really got to it with the last question on the survey, which is that even people who don't see the show, 81.85% of that group has still recommended it to a friend or family. Wow. Um, which is slightly below the 94% of, the, of those of them that have seen it. But that still means that, that, that a, a vast majority of people who are engaging with your show on, on social media, whether or not they've seen it, are recommending the show to friends and family. So if, if, you, if you haven't listened to, to, la, to last episode, you should. Um, if you have, this is where Laura was talking about the girl or the boy in, uh, the, in middle America who you know, comments on every post who will never come to see the show. Uh, I think Laura was using the example of Wicked, that if she was commenting on every Wicked post and Wicked, instead of giving you know, some New Yorker with the demographics of their target audience a T-shirt, if they sent it to this, this, uh, this child in middle America, that person's going to wear the show all over, uh, wear the shirt all over the place. And then, uh, his or her neighbor might, you know, ask, uh, hmm. what, you know, what is that, that shirt that you wear all the time, you know, uh, or, or just come into New York, see the billboard of Wicked and be like, Oh, that's, that's the thing that's on Julie's shirt every day. So, you know, it really started to put hard data behind the, the lessons that I learned in, in last episode's, uh, interviews, which was awesome. Yeah, that's I think that's one of the things that comes with social media is that in traditional media and advertising, you're looking to hit a very specific population. That's why growing up in Ohio or even now living in Florida, I don't see television commercials for Broadway shows. They're tailored towards the people in New York. But with social media, that expands the reach of any show, of any advertising campaign, of any media campaign, to the fact that everybody is a potential, maybe not ticket buyer, but a potential brand ambassador. And and I think that's a really interesting thing, that they're starting to realize that cultivating those communities online helps the bottom line, even if everybody in there never sees the show. So that's, that's really interesting. And I'll tie this, you know, into, uh, into Broadway world here real quick, because that is my, my day job. Um, our social media manager, Alan Henry puts together a social statistics list every week that has everything from all of the current and upcoming Broadway shows and West end shows in terms of their Facebook likes, their Twitter followers, their Instagram followers, how many posts that were made, their changes in followers and people talking about it. So if this social media analytics stuff is interesting to you, go over to uh, the Broadway World's industry page and you can get the social analytics report every week. I think it comes out on, let me see, I think it's on Mondays at like 10 o'clock. Um, and it's really interesting. It's, it's a lot of numbers. Um, but if you go through and look, you can see the trends of what shows are really making an effort to connect with fans on social media and which shows aren't there are certain shows that aren't and uh, and that's okay that's just their their specific strategy right and and i mean it's it's sort of you know again 
with with my sort of fascination and obsession with with data and and looking at uh, the grosses, one thing that if I didn't already think before, this really proves is that it might be worth myself and just everyone to really be looking at those social statistics more closely because you know assuming that of the vast majority of those people who are engaging on social recommending the show that there's also some some actual ticket buyers that result right because there is obviously the chance that those people never buy tickets but we do know that every year the uh, broadway league does a survey of the broadway audience and we do know that word of mouth is the number one reason that they indicate for seeing a show so again it's just if if social media is going to cause word of mouth and it doesn't and and it's sort of it's completely separate from the marketing team right because the because it's completely separate from or the traditional thoughts of, of what the marketing team does which is to sell tickets to the show it might be something that we really want to dig deep into and i think you know you guys at broadway world doing that that uh, social analytics are ahead of the curve in a, in allowing for us as industry you know the yeah. theater makers to to take a look at that and and see if there are correlations that we can find yeah. um so w- moving from beyond the social media aspect uh, of this, w- were there any other points that really stood out to you from uh, from Industry Day? I think the only other things that, that really stood out to me are the way are, – are, are, there, there were sort of moments in Industry Day where we got a glimpse into the way, for example, Instagram – listens to users and makes decisions about uh you know how it's going to change its operations or change its technology based on you know the actual consumer and we heard from John Leguizamo about the way he engages with fans uh whether it's on social or or also being available after at the end of shows so i think that the that other than sort of the the, the immediate the, the sense that i have that there's immediate need for us to double down um, but not only double down, but actually refine our digital strategies when it, especially when it comes to digital strategies that aren't directly related to the point of sale, but just about fostering our communities. It was really sort of about what we should start listening to 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 do the rest of the work we have to do. You know, I, I think really in, in terms of stuff that can happen sort of face to face, we know the tools, right? Like we 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 talked about this last episode, but like. We know that you can – like the ham for ham was like give something to the people that are in lottery – you know, in the lottery line every day or in the rush line every day. Um, and there's – you know, the fact that they're stage drawing proves that there's a sort of uh, – that, that people feel compelled to interact with their star- – with, with, with the stars of the show. So I think that's also sort of part of the picture. But really I, I see the biggest – the truth is that given – the information we now know about the way word of mouth spreads from people who may live across the country, across the world, the easiest way to get to those people across the country and across the world is through digital. You know, we're not going to put a billboard up in Oklahoma, but we'll target the theater lovers in Oklahoma maybe now. Um, So I think that's from industry that that's sort of my biggest takeaway. So beyond the fact that people are very creative with costuming, was there anything that, you you had as terms of a takeaway from Broadway Con proper. Was there anything that you yeah. saw, whether it was a panel or maybe I know the 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 marketplace is something that um, I that's probably what I would be the most interested in and in going and yeah. seeing. Um, but was there anything else that really jumped out at you from your time at Broadway Con this year? So I'll t- there are sort there I think there are two things that 
blew me away. The first is the the variety of programming. So you've got photograph or autograph sessions with your favorite Broadway stars. You have just rooms that are dedicated to pressing play on you know a, a particular cast album or a particular type of of song. And whoever wants can go into the room and sing along. There was also so yeah, th- yeah. Th- those would be the rooms I would be avoiding. Yeah, yeah, uh, but but like you know that that's there's you know there's also for people who are probably a lot more like us and and less interested in belting and more interested in sort of absorbing. Uh, there's lectures uh, from everyone from the biggest probably stars to stage managers and. Set, uh, um, you know, designers and people who, you know, theater owners, you know, learning about probably history. And then there's, there's also like workshops for, you know, honing in on a particular theater skill. And that's all on top of sort of the stuff that I was expecting, which is the show spotlights of the upcoming season and the panels on, uh, you know, the, 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 um, in the Heights reunion panel, the sort of big, you know, the, the big name panels that I sort of knew was, were happening. There were just so many ways to interact with with the with the programming. Yeah. So and that's kind of something where talking about my mega con experience and I've always gone as a as a press member. Um, so there are so many different things that keep you interested, whether it's these huge, ridiculous lines to pay $100 to get an autograph, and I'm sure it's, it's slightly different at, at Broadway Con, um, you know, to get photos and, and, and then all of the panels and all that stuff. It really seems like whether it's Broadway Con or Mega Con or Comic Con or whatever, Leaky Con or whatever, they find ways to keep you busy and interested and engaged yeah. at all times. And I wonder if, obviously, a convention is not an apples-to-apples comparison between, you know, to a Broadway show. But I wonder if there's something to be learned in terms of um, engaged they make you from the moment you step inside the convention center to the moment you leave. Now, obviously, they want you to stay as long as possible and have the best experience and, and buy things from their, you know, their vendors and all that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a little different than coming to a theater where they want you to leave as soon as the theater, the show's over. But I wonder if there's something you can learn about how they really engage this high energy, high intensity fan to bring it over to an actual theatrical experience yeah i mean i think they're i think that the thing you know they're in their third year now and i i hope and you know i certainly am and i think with industry day i think the thing is sort of to that to give and take both ways right and i I, they broadway con has been very good at that um you know there are sort of pop-up performances in the middle of the marketplace so that's sort of again is bringing broadway to just the walking around BroadwayCon experience. But I, I think you're right. I think that we could be uh, – I think that w- right now the the um, the tactics, the, the tools in our utility belt for engaging our fans is quite small. Um, when, when, you, when you get there and you realize you know, all the things that you just said, um, right, really when you walk into the theater, right? I mean absent things you can do outside of the theater, which is basically what we've talked about, you know, online or stage during or whatever. When you walk in the theater, it's sort of here's how you engage with the, with the show. You buy your ticket, you, you go, you sit down, you hear it, you, you maybe buy merch and, and a drink during intermission. Uh, you sit down again and, and you leave. And I think that uh, – so really except for like the things that we consider – that anyone would consider core to the theater going experience merch is maybe like the only thing that we do to one up ourselves. 
Uh, but I think you're right. Like that, you know, can we, uh, and, and I gotta tell you the great comet started playing around with this for sure. And I, and I think, although I, I never saw it, but, um, Charlie and the chocolate, Charlie and the chocolate factory, mm. certainly with their, with their front of house looked like they were doing it, but like there are, uh, you know, making the entryway into your theater, um, part of the theatrical I think experience. Harry, I think um, Harry Potter is doing that in a big way over at the Lyric as well. At least that's the rumor and what yeah. the construction looks like over on 42nd for and 43rd. Sure. For sure. There's there's something something big happening there. Um, yeah, and I, so I think that's sort of the um, – I think that's the, the takeaway is can you extend the theatrical experience or, the, or, or just the – it's not about, even about the theatrical experience really. It's about the engagement with the, with the property. Yeah. Can you can you extend that beyond the you know the doors where you where you enter the theater proper? Yeah. Um, but yeah. the um, I'm going to bring you have far more business experience uh, than I do, obviously. But I am a, a fairly regular viewer of the TV show Shark Tank, so I feel like I have a lot of business experience. But <laughs> but one of the things yeah. that uh, Mark Cuban always says on that show and, and in other places is that entertainment in America is moving from something where you sit and watch the entertainment to something where you experience the entertainment, whether that's interactive um, events and um, and more immersive theater or virtual reality or something, that there has to be something that engages the audience for something to break through in a different way. And I wonder, theater you know, has always had immersive type things. That's not necessarily conducive to how Broadway works right now, but I wonder if they can figure out a way, depending on the show, to make the entire experience in the theater a little more, whether it's immersive or engaging, whether it's through, you know, the theming of the lobby or having things happening before the show or during intermission that aren't going to upset people who don't want that, but can it, it, enhance the thing for the people who are looking for a little bit extra. I mean, I think even something as, um, you know, simple as waitress selling pies in a jar, I think that adds to the experience because it is a, it is very much a part of the show that's being seen. It's not just like, Hey, buy some M&Ms. Hey, buy bottled water. It's something that's very much a part of what waitress is. Right. Or I, I, the thing that just popped into my mind is once where, where you know, before the show started, there was a, a bar on stage yeah. and it added to sort of the pub experience. I think uh, – I do think that is – I think that BroadwayCon is, is a proof of concept for, for you know, the Mark Cuban uh, model, yeah. if you will. But I also um, – I, I also think that the on top of the variety of programming – the other thing that amazed me was that BroadwayCon, despite what I thought going into it, was really I, – I don't think. I would say that it's not really about the programming at all. At least it didn't seem to be for a majority of the people. Like I feel like – now granted, I mean when you're, at, when you're in programming except for the sing-alongs, it's sitting down and watching panels. So it's a little quieter and less, less yeah. salient for, for me as a press person walking around. But the marketplace and even just the hallways of the Javits Center – it felt sort of like the the biggest draw and the and the most time that a lot of people spent at BroadwayCon was in building community or spending time with their communities or learn you know or just just absorbing the the marketplace whether they were buying something or not just just sort of being in a space where they you know like I said at the very beginning with cosplay it's it's just like a safe space for theater geeks and I thought that was the most interesting thing was like. Everything that Melissa had told me about the marketplace made more sense because 
I, in my mind, it was like there was convention programming and there was this marketplace where there'd be, you know, a few people strolling up and down the, um, uh, you know, the rows of, of vendors. But I, that marketplace is crazy. And there's, there's a, uh, you know, one, one vendor had a piano and they would, you know, they were playing musical theater songs and a whole group of people would be around singing them at all times. There were performers. We, Margaritaville, we did a sort of pop-up conga line throughout the, the marketplace at one point. So <laughs> it was just like the marketplace felt like the center of the universe, which was, I had been warned, but I really don't think I believed until I saw it. Yeah, and that's kind of my been in my experience, too, when I've gone to conventions down here. I've never actually gone to any of the panels. I just walk around the marketplace, see what's for sale. There's not uh, conga lines bursting out at Megacon, um, but there's similar things like that. So I think that's uh, that's really interesting. So if you could yeah. put a bow on the whole experience for you, you're obviously not the general yeah. um, Broadway con <laughs> visitor. Um, you're a Broadway producer, so you've got a little bit different perspective. But just for you, if you could put a bow in a sentence or two on your experience at Broadway con, what would yeah. that be? I think that the main thing is that it just confirmed these these beliefs that I had had that there is an untapped energy in our fan in our fan base and in, in the people who love what we do. There are no, I mean, there you, you know me. There are rules. I couldn't see any rules, at least in the convention level, for the demographics of these people. Like the there, this energy is something that there were people with walkers walking around the convention floor. There were people who were clearly cutting class on Friday, you know, at the convention uh, floor. <laughs> it, but there is this energy, and it's being expressed in so many ways. Um, and again, if we go back to my the, the first thing I saw at at in my experience, which was Industry Day, it's not something that people like. I I think industry has a has a tendency to poo poo these people and and say, oh, thank God, Broadway Con exists because it's a this is the outlet for them to express their fandom. Because if they're not going to buy a ticket. I'm desperate for you know for my gross to go up. I've got to I've got to put money into my you know, target demographic. But I think the I think there is a real value in the energy of these fans that can't go unnoticed. And I hope that the way we the way things have been going continues with things like Broadway HD, which I think activate the, the community of people who can't see the show but want to. With things like shows doing Ham for Ham or Dear Evan Hansen doing their Bryant Park Skate. I think we're in the right direction, but it is just uh, – my main takeaway is there is – it is undeniable there's an untapped energy around what we create in uh, on, on Broadway. Well, we're, let's transition a little bit. Speaking of the energy that we create on Broadway, let's talk about what is actually going to be on Broadway and, and kind of do a real quick update in terms of the real estate in this season. Since we last talked, we really only had – maybe one or two. I, don't, I can't remember if, if summer was announced the last time we did one of these. Maybe it had, it had just announced. Had it just announced. Okay. But we did get... I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. If not, summer, the Donna Summer musical, which I honestly would have gone with Donna, the Donna Summer musical, but I'm not naming these things. Um, anyway, what? Do you disagree? Do you think summer's better? Summer seems so oh, vague. I, I mean, to, to be quite honest, I'm not the target demographic no. of Donna Summer's catalog. I, it doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, I'll be more interested in what happens, you know, in the winter with a musical called Summer. 
Yes, that's kind and of my thing. Like, is it is it like the cool. Olaf thing where uh, you, right. you get the, the, the I, that's why I would have gone Donna. It's a little bit easier right. to brand that way than with a, a common word. Anyway, summer the yeah. summer colon the Donna summer musical is going into the Lunt Fontan beginning on March twenty eighth. It's hurrying in. Apparently, the 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 buzz is that it wants to get in during this season because it doesn't want to compete with the Share Show, which independent of each other have a lot of overlap both in the terms of the the time frame a very strong female pop star who has a lot of the same audience but also the title character is being played by three different women at different points in their career so they wanted to differentiate right. themselves themselves from share by getting in a season early. There's technically three theaters that are going to be open as of now, including the court. Then we've also got the Hudson, and then we've got the Nederlander. Now, the Hudson will have Head Over Heels. Uh, and that's, that's a new one we haven't talked about, too. Head Over Heels will be coming that's in true, its yeah. first preview on June 23rd. And then um, over at the Nederlander, Pretty Woman will be coming in on July 20th. So unless either the Nederlanders or ATG decide to put in something really short in the spring, which I think we would have heard about by now, um, it, I think it's pretty safe to assume those will be vacant during the spring. So if some things that have been rumored to be coming in, something from page six was just rumored to be coming into the court, that means we're full um, or as much as we can possibly yeah. be, which is exciting. But it's still, to be honest with you, it's a lot fewer shows opening in the spring than I anticipated. A lot more shows survived, um, you know, did well enough in the fall to make it through this winter season and into the spring, into the summer, apparently it sets up a really, uh, you know, if I, I got to look at your, you have a, that great, uh, a chart of, of what, what each theater looks like, but, but it sets up a really crazy, uh, 2018, 2019 yeah. season because there are so, I mean, I feel like it's popcorn, like, you know, popping in the microwave every day. There's a new, uh, I mean, yeah. while we were I was recording, gonna, I, was this, gonna, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna get to uh, that. Yeah. man. Okay. I, I I was actually not going to bring that up now, but I, I it, it literally is like popcorn. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but literally while we're recording, something announced, and we keep getting also these um you know the soft announcements like we're coming in, but no theater announced, no dates announced, and I'm sort of like sitting back saying, are there even enough theaters no. that will be vacant by the time the 2019 season is over that these shows that are saying they're going to come in next season. Are even able yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the shows that have been announced for next season, like officially announced. Kiss Me Kate, The Prom, Ain't Too Proud to, uh, or just Ain't Too Proud, and To Kill a Mockingbird. But then when you start to go to rumors for next season, it doubles, triples um, in size. And then you get things earlier this week. We got um, an announcement which I think is odd, but we've gotten a couple of these lately, that there's a Huey Lewis and the News musical in the work. We also got one. There's a Bee Gees musical in the work. Works. Um, no real timetable or much of information at all, but those are shows that are going to eventually want to be taking a Broadway house, and I would imagine if they're sending out press releases about it, that it'll be sooner rather than later. Like, it's not going to be in 2024. Um, so at right. some point, they're going to have to come in. So let's fast forward to the fall, since we kind of know what the spring is going to be. And, and I'm assuming that, as we've talked about before, a lot of these shows are starting in 
in June and July. So I'm a, I'm assuming that those yeah. shows have financially figured it out that um, they're going to be fine through the fall season. I don't I don't anticipate any show, including the two that you're uh, well, the one you're involved with. You've got Margaritaville's opening soon, right. but getting the band back together starting in July. I'm going to assume anything that's starting in the summer is going to be fine during the fall. So that means we currently have um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight shows that have already announced a specific theater for the fall. That's not taking into account any shows that are going to continue, which I think is going to be quite a bit. I mean, uh, you know, I I would imagine that a lot of these shows that made it into the summer are going to stick around until at least next January. So we could be looking at a fall that doesn't have a ton of, of openings, which just continues to exacerbate the real estate crunch in the, in the traffic jam that we have uh, on Broadway. And it just leads me to think somebody out there has to be able to figure out how to find a new Broadway theater. There's so many theater spaces out there that have been talked about being renovated into a Broadway space. I don't, you would know better than I do. I, I just, you know, I don't have the money to do it, but somebody has the money to do it. And it just seems like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way to print money because it, it, yeah. And just in terms of the re- owning the real estate itself, real estate in Manhattan is going to go up and then you're always going to have something, you know, for, then you're, you're always going to have a show to put into the space. Yeah. I mean, look, let's let's not uh, getting any space that currently exists to be a functional, you know, Broadway house is going to take a ton of money. And running a Broadway house isn't cheap. So let's not kid ourselves. It's like absolutely it's it's an investment. But but you're right. It it seems like in the current time, uh, it's probably a good investment. And the, you know, I think the the key to think about is for for anyone out there who is considering investing in a Broadway house, <laughs> I I think I think that the question you want to answer is: Are these we we've just come through like the most dense era of long running hits opening or or shows that we sort of know on opening are are going to be long running hits. Uh, and yeah. in, in my recent memory, you know, like you, you know, Hamilton's going to be there for at least a, a decade, you know, Evan Hansen's going to be there for, you know, a, a good five years, you know, I mean, you know, all, all these, you know, Frozen's going to be there for a few years. Um, so these shows that are coming out one after another that are, that have staying power. Um, and, and also you have sort of things that you thought might be on the end of their, of their long runs, like beautiful and waitress. And Kinky Boots that seem to still be, mm-hmm. you know, the engine is still running. So the turnover isn't happening as, as quickly as it used to be. And that's where I think you find opportunity um, because the number of shows isn't just stagnant. The n- number of shows wanting to come in isn't just stagnant, but it has increased, yeah. I think, since since then. So so you're right. I mean, it's classic supply and demand. They're just the supply has gone down. The demand has gone up. It's a it's a it's a Broadway theater owners market right now. What do you think are the factors that have gone in to having so many shows that we in, in past seasons would have considered, you know, modest run shows, maybe two, three years at the most, turning into four, five, six year runs? Um, you know, Kinky Boots, which is a show you're involved yeah. with. I think if you would have told somebody when it opened, this thing will still be running in 2018, they would have been surprised. But that's a show that, you know, has already recouped and continues to do, you know, depending on who the stars are in the show, 
from good box office receipts to very good box office receipts. And then some of these other shows, Waitress, um, seems to be doing fairly well. And we know the Weislers know how to keep shows running for a long time and School of Rock and, and all the and beautiful. What goes into the fact that these shows have been able to extend their life? Obviously, it's good producing, but how? Yeah, I I think the the answer to that is a few things. The f- the first is that I think we've gotten casting down in a way that we never did before. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, and I also think I, I I mean if you look at something like Kinky Boots, Chicago, Waitress, right? These are three examples of of shows that are running right now because uh, I think in a large part because of their brilliant casting. I, I don't think Waitress would be doing the numbers that it is doing today. If it hadn't been, you know, been casting these big stars, I think I think the same thing about Kinky Boots, certainly Chicago, which has sort of been way ahead, you know, have been, has been doing this forever. Uh, and I think that is for two things. One is, I think, just smarter casting. But the second thing is, uh, which goes into sort of my second answer, is that Broadway sort of gotten sexier, I think, to a to a mm-hmm. mass audience. Uh, I think that with Hamilton and and Book of Mormon, like as these big hits become bigger and and seep into pop culture, right? I mean, you have uh, Pasek and Paul who are musical theater writers who had like uh, one of the top billboard charting albums this year with um, The Greatest Showman. So as our artists become more pertinent in pop culture, I think that you have other, you know, uh, pop culture icons who want in you know, on the reverse. Um, and I, th- I think it's been a draw to people like Sarah Bareilles, uh, to people like um, Brandon Urie, uh, who was in Kinky Boots over the summer. Like, I think it's been a draw to have these pop icons come in because they see it's working and they see it's fun and they, they see that people, that, they're, that they actually have more overlap than they ever did before between yeah. fans. And then I think that the, the, the other thing is social media and the digital age. I think that it'd be so interesting, right? If I had a time machine and I could go back and, and, and sort of, I well, I wouldn't be able to invent the internet. So, but if I, if I could like, Al Gore recreate, for that. right. Like, yeah. If I could, you know, if I could put uh, a sort of three, you know, like a three, a solid three year show or, um, or even a, a massive hit show, like a rent or a next to normal is what I'm thinking, or a, a spelling bee, one of these like sort of, Either either a total hit show like Rent, or like a show that got a good few years and became sort of a a a, bra, a, a musical theater icon of a show, but but ran out of time in in three years or so. I just wonder whether social media would have changed that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it, I I have faith in a lot of the people that work in the Broadway community about having to figure things out, but it definitely seems like the expanse to what is possible with these shows has been extended because of social media. And I think those last two points you made about getting some of these star castings um, and social media, they play well together because I would imagine that a lot of people that were really excited to pay a lot of money to come see Brendan Urie in, in kinky boots were not people who would normally be buying theater tickets and to kind of not only expand it, you know, by casting him and say, he's got this huge fan base, let's get them in, but also then to open them up to future things. I think that's a a really good thing. And I think that's a, a really smart producing move. Not just for Kinky Boots, but for a lot of these other shows. Obviously, Waitress has the built-in connection there. But um, 
Yeah, it, it's it's just been really interesting, um, frustrating, I'm sure, for producers who have shows waiting to get in. But when you have the ability to keep a, lo- a show running longer, that's the goal. I mean, you it's not like, hey, well, let's recoup and then close. It's let's recoup and then start making more money than you know would have been possible five years ago. Right. So um, it's interesting and it's exciting to see what happens. But it also makes every announcement like we just got for Jez Butterworth's The Ferryman, which is going to come in in October and is going to um, take over the uh, Bernard B. Jacobs Theater after Iceman Cometh closes. Um, there's going to be some of these things. It makes these a little more rare than we're used to and makes them a little bit more valuable, which is a good thing for the theater owners because when they do have an opening, they can a really pick and choose what shows they want to go in and B yeah, maybe they jack up the rent a little bit. So I saw the ferryman when I was in London and I will say, I'm really glad that it's coming in. Uh, it is totally worth the three hours and 15 minutes that it is. It goes by really quickly. Um, I'm going to see it again at the Jacobs and I'm really excited for that. Yeah. As I start planning, uh, I'm coming to New York in March, and then I'll, as soon as I'm done with that, I'll start planning my uh, October, November trip. This will definitely be one that's on my radar. I saw, I don't know if I think it was Jez Butterworth, maybe it's not his last show, but I saw Jerusalem. I I honestly have no idea what the hell happened in Jerusalem, but I loved every second of it. So I will uh, will definitely be uh, taking a chance to see this one uh, when I'm in town uh, later this year. His last one was The River with Hugh Jackman. Oh, that's right. But then before that was Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah, with uh, Cush Jumbo and... uh, And Mark Rylance was in that. Oh, was was Mark Rylance in The River too? Uh, oh no 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 no! Sorry, in in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah yeah, yeah never... absolutely. It, yes yes yes. And uh, yes, and it had a great cast. Uh, John Gallagher Jr. Um, I believe was in it as well. But that's yeah. that's starting yep, to get back right. to like seven eight years, and my memory is a little yeah. hazy. So, but anyway, he, he's a, he's a he's a very talented writer, and his, this is uh, I think in line with those other two works cool. um, in terms of quality. Thank you for listening to The O'Henry Report. If you have any questions from previous episodes or ideas for the next one, tweet me at Oliver Henry Roth. You can find The O'Henry Report on BroadwayWorld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Basically, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, we're there. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.